welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In his grief, C.S. Lewis once wrote, The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. A J. Thomas, pastor at Seven Mile Road Church in Philadelphia, brings us this sermon entitled, A Nightlight for Those in Darkness, which covers Psalm 88. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Perimeter Church, it really is a joy and an honor to be with you. I consider it the providence of God to have been allowed to visit you sometime back. And then all the gospel partnership and fruit that has been born from that one encounter, I am so thankful to God for you. Uh, for your leaders, for the friendship that I have enjoyed and their encouragement and support. You all have been more of a blessing than you could possibly know. So it's a joy to be here. For today, in our time in God's Word, I want us to consider Psalm 88. So if you've got a Bible or an app, you can turn to Psalm 88. And as you turn there, I want to invite you to consider two quotes from two great men of history. The first is a quote by a man named Charles Spurgeon. If that name is familiar to you, then you know that Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in England. He pastored a church the size of you all before there were churches the size of you all. He did so for 40 years, unparalleled in his ministry success and prowess. He's quoted and referred and cited to to this day. His nickname is the Prince of Preachers. And yet, consider this quote about sort of the interior life of Charles Spurgeon what his soul felt like, and what his emotions were. Spurgeon said, I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Or consider this quote from our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, a man who needs no introduction. Lincoln said, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Now, I don't know about you, but I was at least initially surprised to hear words like those coming from the mouths of men like them, men who had reached such staggering and unparalleled heights and yet seemed to be very familiar to know what it was like to be very low. If they were alive today, we would tell them that they sound like they're in depression. It's interesting, in my city, the city that I come from, in Philadelphia, there was a study done recently about the top internet searches of people in Philadelphia when it comes to the scriptures. So the average man or woman, when they get on their computer and they log into a search engine, what do they search about what the scriptures have to say? What does the Bible say about blank? Well, right at the top of that list of internet searches was this question. What does the Bible say about depression? It's telling and revealing, I think, about what the average man and woman in my city is struggling with and suffering from. And I suspect that if your city is anything like mine, then you know now the questions that your colleagues and classmates, your neighbors and friends, family and people in the pews next to you, and you and I are asking as well, which is, what does God have to say to those who find themselves in despair? 
What, if anything, does the scriptures have to say to those who find themselves with darkness that will not lift, when darkness becomes your only companion? And to consider that is why I think we should go to Psalm 88. In fact, if you're there, let me read for you what Psalm 88 says. This is a psalm of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Perhaps you can hear it and feel it. But Psalm 88 has often been called the darkest psalm in the Psalter, the saddest song in the Bible, the saddest prayer in the Scriptures. And what makes Psalm 88 particularly dark and especially sad is that this psalm never turns. Right? Here's, here's what I mean. Just about all the other psalms of lament, and the Bible is full of psalms of lament. In fact, they say that one-third of the psalms are laments, wails, and cries, and complaints to God. But just about all the other ones, with the exception of Psalm 39 and here in 88, at some point turn. At some point, they pivot. At some point, they start in the basement, but then they climb and they ascend. At some point, the clouds part and a ray of sunlight comes and a glimmer of hope and something changes, and so it ends on a positive note. For example, just consider Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a very well-known psalm of Levent, and it begins in the basement. You can hear it. Psalm 13, verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But then, in just four verses, watch how it ends. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You can hear the turn. You can see the pivot. It starts in the basement, but then it climbs. In verse 1, he's weeping, but verse 5 and 6, he's singing and rejoicing. 
That's the way it is. That's the pattern in just about all the laments. At some point, God shows up. At some point, God hears. At some point, God rescues. At some point, God delivers. God does something. Or if nothing else, at some point, the psalmist himself has this bolt of renewed faith, and it ends on a positive note. But not Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is a tunnel with no light at the end of it. Psalm 88 are dark clouds with no silver lining. Psalm 88 is a song played only in minor chords. Psalm 88 is a cellar with no stairs and a pit with no rope. Psalm 88 is a piece of art with only dark brush strokes. And when you consider that, this psalm begins in darkness, and the only way it goes is down. It descends so that literally it ends in darkness. In fact, quite literally, the last word of the psalm is darkness. The only companions I have left is darkness. The only friend I've got is darkness. And you begin to think, what kind of song is this? I mean, remember, after all, the Psalms are the hymn book of God's people. When they gathered for worship, like we're sitting today, they would have turned to the Psalms and they would have sang the Psalms. Can you imagine a worship leader coming up to the stage and leading God's people and saying, today's song turned to hymn 88? We're going to sing, what a friend we have in darkness. I mean, that's, that's the Psalm. And so that makes you wonder, what is this song and this prayer and this psalm doing in the Bible, or maybe more relevant to us, what hope could possibly be gleaned from a psalm that has no hope? And what light can come from a psalm that's totally in the dark? And what help can come from a psalm where no help comes? And the answer is, surprisingly, a lot. Because, brothers and sisters, when we let the message of this psalm sink in, this psalm can become for us, as some have referred to it, a nightlight for those in darkness. This psalm can become for us a nightlight in the darkness. In fact, you know what you should sing when you're miserable? Psalm 88. You know what you should pray when you're depressed? Psalm 88. You know what you should say when you don't have any words to be able to say? Psalm 88. Because this psalm gives language and vocabulary to speak and sing and pray in our pain. So from this psalm then, I want us to consider one thing we should know and one thing we should do when we find ourselves or the people we love around us in darkness. One thing we should know and one thing we should do when we find ourselves or the people around us whom we love in darkness. Here's the first thing. When you find yourself in darkness, when you find someone you love in darkness, know that even godly, mature believers get depressed. Know that even godly, mature believers get depressed. Quite plainly, Perimeter, if you and I think that godly, believing, mature Christians are somehow immune from melancholy and are somehow spared from despair or depression, that would be unhelpful and it would be untrue. This psalm was not written by a JV Christian. This psalm, if you remember right above verse 1, there's a little bit of superscript. That's not put in by the English Bible. That's in the original. And so that bit of information tells us that this psalm was written by a man named Heman. Heman the Ezraite. 
And if it's the same Heman that you find earlier in the Bible, well, what you know about this Heman is this man was actually the grandson of a prophet named Samuel. If that name is familiar to you, Samuel was one of Israel's great prophets. He literally poured oil on Israel's greatest king, a man named David. Well, that was his grandpa. And Heman himself went on to become a singer of God's people. In fact, he was appointed by David to be a worship leader over Israel. He composed songs for God's people. He had 17 kids, all of whom became musicians and served in God's choir. And if none of that impresses you, he wrote scripture. Meaning no matter how spiritual you and I get, no matter how many devotionals we do, we're never going to have author of the Bible in our resume. So... So Heman wins. He's better than us, right? And you can, you can even see his godliness and his maturity in this psalm. Because no matter how pitch black it's gotten, Heman is still praying. In fact, you can see it right there in verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And the phrase there, cry, by the way, is not a dignified prayer. It's not composed. It's prolonged wailing. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. You hear it? Day after day, morning and night, night and morning, Heman is praying. And what does that mean? It means, friends, that you can be a believer who is godly and mature and praying, and you can pray and pray and pray and still have everything in your life go totally wrong and still be left totally in the dark. You can have your devotional every morning and every night like Heman did. Never miss a quiet time and get to the amen of your prayer and nothing changes. And God doesn't seem to answer. And God doesn't seem to show up. And the darkness doesn't lift. This man never missed his quiet time. Never missed a church service. This man was godly and mature. A genuine and true believer. And his life was falling apart. I mean, just listen to his cry. Scan with me at these verses. In verse 3, his soul is full of troubles and he feels like he's going to die. In verse 4 and 5, he says that God is the one who has left him to die. And because of that, God has forgotten about him and he has no more strength. He literally is saying, I can't go on. I can't take this anymore. He's got a towel in his hand and he's ready to throw it in. He's done. And then in verse 8, he's all alone. Everyone has shunned him. He's cut off from all of his relationship, all of his friendships, and he's trapped in misery. He's shut in and cannot escape. In verse 9, his eyes grow dim through sorrow, like he's cried so much he can't see straight anymore, like his life is ebbing away and his sight is vanishing all the way until it descends in 18, till he says, darkness is the only friend I've got left. The implication being, by the way, darkness and not God is the only friend I have left. And here's what makes this even worse. If that's sad, what makes it unbearable is that it's not just that the things around him have turned dark. It's that the things within him have turned dark. You see, the worst thing of all is, is as if God has turned off the light in his soul. 
and he's pitch black in there. And he's groping like a blind man trying to find God, but God is nowhere to be found. You see, that's what makes it worse. It'd be one thing if he knew God was near. Like if you're going through a hard thing and you know that God is with you, no matter how hard it is, you can endure because you feel God next to you. You sense his presence. And if you've got the light of God's countenance blazing your valley, no matter how dark it is, you can go through it. You can say with David, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. But not here. Here, it's pitch black and it's quiet. He doesn't hear God like he once used to. He doesn't see God like he once did. He doesn't sense God or feel God's nearness the way he once enjoyed it. He's looking for God and God is hiding himself. In fact, that's what he says in verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Can you hear that question? Have you ever asked that question? Like, I'm looking for you. Why would you hide from me? I'm I'm literally looking for you. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why you created human beings, to look for you. And I'm searching for you, and you hide yourself from me. You see, what this psalm is teaching us is that you can be godly and mature and believing and praying, and it doesn't make you immune from the grips of sadness or the darkness of despair. Now, I know what you're thinking. For one, you're thinking, Jeff, let's not invite this guy back. I mean, golly, (laughs) right? But after that, I think you might even be thinking, how is any of this helpful? Like, how is knowing that helpful? And, And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, it is. It's helpful because it sets our expectations about what life in a broken world looks like and is right It sets our expectations right so that you and I don't walk through our Christian life naive and gullible to the thought that if we just love Jesus and do the right thing, the really bad things won't happen to us. That somehow we're spared from them, we're immune from them. It sets our expectation right. I I heard one preacher say it like this. It's almost like if you were about to walk into a room and right before you went in, someone told you that's a honeymoon suite, a presidential palace. Okay, now you might walk into the room and you might go, this place is a dump. But if someone were to tell you right before you were to walk into that same room, this is a prison cell, you might walk into the same exact room and go, it's not so bad. Why? There's nothing different about the room. There's no change in the interior. It's just that your experience of it was conditioned by your expectations of it. And so this psalm is letting us know we ought not be surprised, as the scriptures say, by the fiery trials that may come into our life. We ought not be gullible or naive to the, th- the thought that if we just follow Jesus and love him and come here, that we'll be spared and saved from all the bad things. I heard that same preacher say, you know that great verse in the New Testament that says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That's right, and that's true, and yes and amen to that. But you know what's implied in that is that we then are susceptible to all things. Yes, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, but that means that you and I might go through all kinds of things. And we're not spared from the all things. And yes, our God is sovereign enough to work them all together for our good, but we're not immune from the all things. 
What this psalm teaches us is that even godly, mature, believing Christians get depressed. That's what we should know. So what should we do? When we find ourselves or our loved ones in a darkness that will not lift, what should we do? And I think the other thing that this psalm teaches us is this. When life is really hard, you should tell God that life is really hard. What this psalm gives you permission to do is to say, when life is kicking you in the teeth, you have permission to go to God and tell him that life is kicking you in the teeth. If I were to ask you, how would you describe this man's prayer? Like if we had a whiteboard here and I was going to just jot down all the words that you and I would use to describe this prayer, what words would go on that whiteboard? I mean, just, just look for a second at this prayer again. Look at verse 6, because in verse 6, he turns and he starts saying, you. So you can picture sort of a, a finger pointed to the skies, a, a fist raised to the heavens. And what's interesting is in just about all the other Psalms of Lament, there is some enemy that the psalmist is complaining about. He, he, someone's out for him. Someone's there to get him. Someone's out for his ruin. In this Psalm, there's no enemy. And it's eerily almost as if God takes the place of that enemy. Because now he's going to say you. And listen to what he says. Verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And then skip down to verse 10. Because now in 10, he's got some questions to ask God. So he begins. God, let me ask you something. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Do you hear, brothers and sisters, the questions he's asking? He's saying, God, I got to ask you something. Do you have a choir in the grave that I don't know about? Do you have a concert in the land of the dead that I'm not aware of? Do you have skeletons that rise up in coffins to sing of your steadfast love? What do you gain from letting me die? Aren't you the one that created us to worship you? And I'm more than ready to do that, but you won't save me. Why won't you come? Why won't you help me? Why are you doing this to me? And after all of that, nothing. No answer. No response. No voice, no clouds part, no sunlight comes. It's just dark and it's quiet. And so left there, he then says in verse 15, with God nowhere to be found, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. You know what he's saying? This is nothing new with you, God. You've never been there for me. Like from my youth up, this is the way it's been with you and me. You see what he's doing? He's starting to see his whole life and narrative through the lens of this present darkness. It's clouded his vision of everything. He can't see anything right. And so I want to ask you again, brothers and sisters, how would you describe this man's prayer? What words would go on that whiteboard? I imagine that we'd find the word honest on there. 
And I imagine somebody would have said, it's uncensored. Somebody else might have added, it's unfiltered. It's raw. Maybe we would have worked up the cards and said, it sounds a little irreverent. Uh, we know this is the Bible, but maybe we would have added, it even feels a bit imperfect, like the words aren't all right. And whatever words would have showed up on that whiteboard, I think in big, bold letters, we would have also written the word real. Whatever this prayer is, it's real. Because this is the real human talking real to a real God. He is not hiding behind a polished spirituality. He's not putting on a plastic smile. He's not just got theology in his head. There's something going on in his heart. And the real Heman is talking to a real God. And here's the thing about this prayer. What Heman prays would make all of us nervous. Like if after service was done, someone got on stage and was allowed to pray and prayed like this, we would all start shifting in our seats and we'd all look to Jeff and go, would somebody pull this guy off? Tell him he's not allowed to talk like that. You can't say that maybe in your bedroom, but not in corporate worship as the church of God. And yet here's what I want you to consider. What does it say about our God that a prayer that would make us uncomfortable doesn't make God uncomfortable or a prayer that would offend us doesn't offend God. Or a prayer that we would be unsettled by, God is not shifting on his seat in the throne. In fact, what does it say that God only not only reject this guy or his prayer, but recorded this prayer? And if you want to really consider it, what does it say about our God that his Holy Spirit inspired this prayer? That this wasn't even just human, that God's Holy Spirit inspired these words from the mouth of humans so that you and I might have language to pray when we're miserable and sing when we're depressed and speak when we don't know what to say. You see, when life is really hard, you have biblical permission to tell God that life is really hard. You know what really godly, mature, believing Christians do? When life is kicking them in the teeth, they weep, they wail, they mourn, they cry. It's like one singer named Michael Card, he says it this way. He says, it seems to me that we do not need to be taught how to lament. What we need is simply the assurance that we can lament. You know, if you go onto an internet search, if the people in Atlanta know, want to know what does the Bible say about those in depression, here's what the Bible say. The Bible doesn't say, get over it. The Bible says, go to God with it. The Bible's message for those in pain is not get over your pain. The Bible's message is go to God with your pain. And that's what's most amazing about this psalm. Listen to this one quote from a commentator because it's really good. He says this, cloudy as this psalm seems, we shouldn't miss the most obvious point. Yes, the psalmist says his soul is full of troubles, that his life draws near to the grave, that he feels like a dead man, like one forgotten, that it seems as if God has isolated him in regions dark and deep, that he's drowning, that he can't escape, that his life is a horror, that he's cast down, that he's unheard, that he's afflicted, shunned, but he's telling all of this to God. That's the point. A believer's life falls apart, but it falls apart Godward. He passes out but he passes out onto God. He collapses, but he did so into God's arms and onto God's lap. Heman is kicking and screaming and crying and complaining and accusing, but he's doing so wrestled in the arms of God and sitting on God's lap. And Heman will not let go of God no matter how dark it gets. 
He's like a pit bull with lockjaw. He's got a grip on God and he's never letting God go. And if you and I, brothers and sisters, can hold on to God, no matter how dark it gets, then there's the potential for something great to happen in us and for us to be transformed into something great. Let me tell you something that I heard Tim Keller, a preacher in New York, say that I thought was just brilliant about this whole thing. He says, you know, Heman now is holding on to God even though he's not getting anything out of it. Like he's not getting anything out of this relationship with God anymore. No prayers that are being answered, nothing being done for him, no change in his circumstance, not even the decency of God's presence. And in that, every commentator that has talked about Psalm 88 says he sounds a lot like another sufferer earlier in the Bible. Like if you turn left from Psalms, you'd be in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, there's this sort of contest between God and Satan, a gauntlet that's been thrown down. And if you remember the story, Satan comes to God and he essentially asks this question. You want me to consider Job your servant? He says, does Job worship you for nothing? Of course Job worships you. You answer his prayers. You give him your presence. You give him blessing. You show him your face. But listen, turn off the light. Don't answer his prayers. Don't give him what he wants. Don't go near him. And I promise you, he will curse you and die. And you know the sting of it? Keller said the sting of it is there's a little truth to what Satan is saying. We do start off with superficial relationships with God. We are just using him to a means to another end. We often want him because of what he can get us. And if he won't get us that thing, we don't want him. But the darkness, the darkness has a way of transforming you. Because in Psalm 88, Satan is defeated. Heman's not getting anything out of this. And Heman's still holding on. And there's this line that Keller says. He says, darkness is when God comes to us and says, now we'll know if you got into this relationship to serve me or to get me to serve you. That's what the darkness does. It exposes whether you're in this relationship to serve God or to get God to serve you. If you find yourself in darkness, what you should know is that even godly, believing, mature Christians get depressed. And what you should do is when life is really, really hard, you should tell God that life is really, really hard. I mean, by telling you this, as you and I sit here and listen to Heman's words in Psalm 88, we know something that Heman had no idea when he wrote this psalm. Remember, there's two dark psalms, 39 and 88. In 39, it ends by saying, turn your face from me. And 88 ends in darkness. And yet what Heman had no idea is that both these dark psalms would be embodied in one sufferer who endured this more than Heman could ever imagine. There was one sufferer from whom God did turn his face and one sufferer who was left in total darkness. Matthew says it this way in chapter 27, as Jesus is hanging from the cross, he says, from noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? Heman had no idea that the very God he was shaking his fist at would one day come down and embody his own prayer more than Heman ever did. 
Heman felt abandoned. He wasn't. Felt like he was left in the dark. He wasn't. But God himself would come and experience the darkness. And God himself would come and know what it was to be totally abandoned. In fact, Jesus Christ is the one who could say, hanging from the cross, darkness is the only companion I have left. And because Jesus, bearing my sin and yours and our sorrows and yours, because he came and experienced Heman's worst nightmare, we never will. Because Jesus did go down into the depths of Sheol, and because he was let go and was abandoned and was gone into the land of the dead, now our worst nightmare has been transformed because he came out on the other side of death. And the darkness gave way to the light of resurrection. And now we are those who are able to actually say, actually, Brother Heman, there is a concert in the dead. There is a choir in the grave. The dead do rise up to sing of his steadfast love. And because of Jesus Christ, darkness will never have the last word over us. Because on the other side of the grave, we will all live happily ever after. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we pray that your word would be timely to many of the brothers and sisters sitting here and that it would be evidence that you know where they are, you know what they're going through, and despite how it feels, you do care. Come meet us, O Lord, and give us the strength that's needed, though we can't see your hand, to keep holding on to you knowing that you hold on to us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.